Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're in human performance today, you recognize that the industry has changed. Gone are the days of highly focused specialists who live in their isolated lanes, working without the understanding of the whole human being. The world of human performance is about integration today. It's about recognizing what your client needs to do to perform at their highest potential, discovering the parts of the puzzle of performance that need work, while keeping this person moving, training, performing, and succeeding seamlessly. Reconditioning is an operating system for this new world of human performance. The practice honors the role of each specialization and helps define the most powerful and tactical use of interventions that will make a difference. You don't take your car to the garage only when it's broken. You schedule for regular maintenance so that it keeps running smoothly when you need it. The human body is no different and reconditioning professionals are those best prepared to keep the human body running. Check out our courses at ReconditioningHQ.com today. Follow our robust educational programming and become the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. Matrix Fitness is one of the world's leading edge manufacturers and suppliers of human performance equipment. I am proud to have them as a sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast because I know they are dedicated to getting more people moving. Movement is medicine. All humans are designed to move. And if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we need movement more today than ever. Stuck in our homes, restricted from much of what we have done socially, getting physical by any means possible is essential. Whether you are at home and looking for equipment that will keep you moving, or you train people for a living, Matrix is there to provide you with the equipment you need to succeed and the advice to make it happen. Matrix has more than 500 products catering to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. Matrix also delivers a wide range of complete programming solutions to build strength, explosiveness, speed, and agility in athletes of all kinds. In this last year, Matrix engaged performance coach Mark Fitzgerald as head of the Matrix Canada performance team to help you make the right decisions on your performance needs. For more information and a free consult, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. This podcast has always been about exploring the journey of my guests, and if you're a regular listener or an occasional connector, you'll know that the stories and the lives of my guests are always marked with changes in direction, overcoming challenges, and occasionally moments of misdirection. These days, having someone in your corner that you can confide in, find counsel without judgment, and the opportunity to learn from their insights is likely more valuable than ever before. It's really the reason I started this podcast, so the voice of my guests could provide some of this truly needed insight. But I've also recognized during my journey that providing a place of community and a place for counsel and insight would be extremely valuable for my listeners. So I am embarking on a new journey to support you. The Leave Your Mark Life Lab will open its doors to a small group of hand-selected professionals who want to live their best lives. You can read about this program on our website, lymlab.com, today, where you can also catch the latest episodes of this podcast. I will be launching the application process in the next week, and the program will open its doors in February. 
I hope you'll join me so I may help you leave your mark. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Bertram. Chris is the Senior Director of Applied Neuroscience at Exos and an Associate Professor at the University of Fraser Valley. Chris specializes in creating environments that are designed to maximize learning, build resilience, and optimize performance under pressure. His academic and professional focus is in the area of skill acquisition and flow state, with an emphasis on the nature of expert and of expertise and elite performance level performance, excuse me, I'm botching my my beginning here. I'm going to start again. (laughs) I don't usually do that. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Bertram. Chris is the Senior Director of Applied Neuroscience at Exos and an Associate Professor at the University of Fraser Valley. Chris specializes in creating environments that are designed to maximize learning and build resilience and optimize performance under pressure. His academic and professional focus is in the area of skill acquisition and flow state, with an emphasis on the nature of expertise and elite-level performance. Chris has published more than 70 scientific articles across a spectrum of human performance and has been featured in the Globe and Mail, the Vancouver Sun, the New York Times, as well as the Golf Channel. His work has encompassed a wide array of high-performing individuals, including PGA Tour winners, collegiate national champions, Olympic champions, X Games champions, military leaders, special forces operators, as well as corporate leaders of Fortune 500 companies. Above all his accomplishments, he is a father to his two girls, Kelsey and Maggie, and a husband to Kara. I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Chris. Scotty, thank you for that. And so good to see you again, my friend. Yeah, well, it's been a long time coming. I was trying to, has it been three or four years since that thing? It's been a while. I was just just having this conversation with somebody right before this, and it was three years ago this March that I would have seen you down in Arizona the last time. Wow, it's crazy. Well, sir, uh, I'm I'm glad we finally got around to doing this. And uh, as I usually do with these uh, podcasts, I'm, I want to walk through your your life and where you came from and what influenced you. So, tell me about where you grew up and and what were you uh, sort of dreaming about being when you were a little boy. Yeah. Well, I grew up, I was originally, I was born in Toronto in 1970. And then I, my, my parents got a job move out to Alberta. And so I generally refer to Calgary as my hometown. Okay. So when I, when I growing up there, obviously, um, you know, winter sports were a big part of my life. Um, I was really passionate uh, in hockey when I was young, that was, I played everything, but I really fell in love with hockey. I remember it was the first time I ever asked my parents to Mm. let me join something. And it was (laughs) hockey. I just, and it was everything. It was all consuming in my life for a lot of years. And I think it was around probably 1980 sometime in the early eighties when it was announced that Calgary was getting the winter Olympics in 1988. And I had pegged in my mind that I would be 18 and I would be on that hockey team. So that was a, you know, of course that didn't pan out, but at the time that inspired, um, sort of Olympic dreams in my head. Um, and I, I've, I've got some Olympic history in my, in my family as well. So, you know, when I, when I think about, you know, the, the opportunities that I've been lucky enough to work with professionally and some of the teams that I'm working with now, I think there's a line that you can draw to those dreams of, you know, playing in the Olympics, uh, and being on home ice there in Calgary. That was a big part of it. So, yeah, that was, those were some of the early memories and, you know, that was where the passion I think for sports and working with athletes and and that sort of a thing 
maybe a Were you a Flames fan or a Leafs fan? Well, you know, I, I said that I, that's a great question. And I, I will say both. My first ever game was at Maple Leaf Gardens with my dad. And that that leaves a mark. My great grandfather actually played for the Maple Leafs the very first mm. year. They were the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1927. Wow. He was the one that played in the Olympics, too, by the way. Um but uh, when I got to Calgary, of course, right around the Olympic year, which was 88, the Flames won the Stanley Cup in 88. Right, right. So I was against the Canadians. Against the Montreal <laughs> Canadiens. So, yeah, I've got a dual allegiance there. I'd frankly be more than grateful to see either one of them win the Stanley Cup or the Montreal Canadiens for that point, for that matter, at this point in our uh, history. I would just love to see a Canadian team get in there, except for the Canucks, oddly. I live in the West Coast right now. I can't get behind the Canucks. What did you like about hockey? What uh, what did what did it serve in you in a sense? I think there was the team element to it, but it was just the speed of it, right? It was the speed, and and I loved, you know, sort of the playmaking side of it, and you know, watching plays unfold. And I also was really lucky at that point that as a Calgary fan in the early eighties, there was this dude three hours North named Wayne Gretzky, who used to come to town a lot. And I would get to watch him play and got to meet him when I was a kid. And, you know, just to watch him play the game, the way he played the game, just kind of rewrote the rule book on what his hockey strategy kind of looked Mm -hmm. like. And, and I just love that tactical element to it and the skill component of it. There was speed yet finesse and power and it just required so much. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I just absolutely loved it. How did you meet Wayne? Well, that's a great story too. I was 12. Uh, let's see. What was I? I was 11 years old and he came to a Calgary sport check, which is a sporting goods store. If you're not listening to this in Canada, and he was going <laughs> to sign autographs. And my dad took me up there. And the week before, as it turned out, I was a big hockey card collector. And for whatever reason, like I wasn't that excited about Wayne Gretzky. No, but like, yeah, he was this kid. He tied for the scoring lead the year before and it was exciting, but he was an oiler. So I wasn't that thrilled about it, but I wanted his hockey card and you couldn't get it. It was so hard. We'd get hockey cards every day after school. And I remember the day I opened a pack and was leafing through them. And I, oh yeah, I got a Gretzky finally. And I took it up there and that was what I had him sign. It was funny the the day I was there, I was in line with a lot of older kids and they had jerseys and sticks. And there were some teenage kids that were kind of poking fun at me a little bit. And like, look at this little kid. He's got his hockey card here to sign. I was embarrassed and I walked up and Gretzky said to me, I've never seen this before. I showed him his first NHL hockey card, as far as I know. (laughs) At least that's the story I remember. And I still have it to this day. And they just sold one for like $2 million the other week. (laughs) (laughs) That's an awesome story. I love that. So you you grew up loving hockey. You grew up loving. You start to connect with it at the Olympics. Um, what are you doing academically? Are you an academic as a kid, or are you kind of a sports kid? And and I was a what's sports your... kid, um, and I was not an academic kid, Scott. I uh, I like to tell the story of I barely made it through high school. I literally I crammed the night before final exams in grade twelve and barely made it. Had an un ceremonious exit from my first year in college. I went to Mount Royal College right out of high school. That lasted one semester. 
and was told not to come back on academic <laughs> suspension. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I was into playing sports. I, I played junior A lacrosse too. So that was a thing mm-hmm. at that point I was 19. And, uh, and then at some point my mom kept sending me brochures from, you know, university programs. And at some point I was about 21 and 22 and thought, okay, it's time. I've, I've done this. I want to do some other things. And I went back to university at that point and went for 10 years and consecutively and finished my undergrad and eventually my doctorate. So you mentioned your mom um, sort of sending that stuff. What, who was more influential in your kind of growth as a human being, your mom or your dad, and for what reason or both? <laughs> well, from the academics side, it was definitely my mom. Uh, because even when I was going through grad school, my dad was pulling me aside and saying, all right, enough already, get a job. <laughs> when I started my PhD, he literally set up like a job interview for me with a friend of his who had a business and said like, all right, Chris, stop fucking around. It's time to get a job. <laughs> uh, and I kept at it. And my mom was very supportive of that. But I would say, um, you know, from the, the standpoint of, you know, the athletic side and, and the, the competitive side and, and that drive and kind of, you know, that hard nose that you have to have, that was certainly my dad. He was a pretty uh, strong authoritarian. He passed away a few years back. But, mm. you know, from the standpoint of, you know, let's get serious, let's do things, let's, when you put your mind to something, get after it and don't settle for second best that certainly came from my dad so i i I took some interesting i think qualities from both of them that i still see it coming out and here coming out of me all the time how did relative success in sport or even the endeavor of sport serve you as you went into academics like what what did it serve you in terms of your work ethic or your approach or what you were interested in well, I think from the interest side, it was it was pretty obvious. When I first went into, you know, I, the, the pamphlet that my mom sent that caught my eye was around sports medicine. And, mm. you know, I, I certainly was, I knew that if I was going to go to school, I wanted somehow to come back to sport, right? And so I thought at the time it was going to be sport medicine because I was kind of interested in injuries. And I was interested in the human body and, and I thought, you know, maybe physiotherapy or maybe end up in med school. And, and of course, I ended up pivoting there uh, and moving more into the skill acquisition side of it. At some point, that decision was made when I was in grad school. But, you know, from the skills transfer, I think, from sport, I think it was just, you know, knowing that, you know, you get better through work and, and it takes effort and it takes time and reps and you know, your expectations are at a, I think, a healthy level and, you know, understanding how to work with other people and work in teams and in groups and to collaborate and all of those things obviously are the, are the great lessons of sport. And um, I think I took uh, a lot of those lessons. I, I've never really been afraid of hard work, but I also, you know, also like to work smart and, you know, having good strategy around how to learn and get better that's really where my my passions ended up when when I ended up making that decision to study human learning and skill acquisition. That was uh, that was all part of the you know how do we do this better? How do we mm-hmm. how do I how do I how can I study more in less time? How can I get better at skills in less time? 
because I've never been one to just do mindless work. I like to work, but I also don't like to waste time. So (laughs) optimizing learning and performance has been a big, you know, passion of mine, both personally and professionally. Now I know why the two of us get along so well when I connect with you. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, I'm a little older than you, a few years older than you, but you were kind of from the same same generation in essence that you're coming into this world of sports medicine, sports science, et cetera, when it's really just kind of growing up in in North America. It's not, and especially in Canada, I think it was a little further ahead in the States and stuff because of the NCAA. But what are your, what are these influences as you're coming into school that are kind of saying, Hey, you can go into skill acquisition and this is an area that you might actually be able to make a living in and, or, or not (laughs) in essence back in those days. Yeah. Well, lucky to have just great mentors from, the get-go is when I was in when I started in school there was a a sports medicine doctor my mom was a nurse and she worked Mm -hmm. in a clinic with a sports medicine doctor and Hmm. you know this was in Calgary and they were working with you know all sorts of national teams and rodeo athletes in Calgary that were getting all these crazy injuries and I got to hover around there and you know he was always a, a very generous person for me and he was an inspiration early on just to say oh wow you can have this career and yet be around high performance sport and be a part of that team and those integrated services and you know that was that's where I I really started to get passionate about going to university and that and like I said for the first my undergrad was in pre-med and sort of athletic therapy and thinking that I was going to go down that route and I uh, was getting, you know, preparing for the MCAT and still going that way. But I had this interesting gap year at the end of my, my undergrad while I was preparing to do the MCAT and apply to school, I was going to have about an eight month awkward stretch where I wasn't, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And so I applied to a graduate program. I got a scholarship at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and started that master's program all the while thinking, well, if I don't get into medical school the first year, maybe I'll finish the master's degree, or if not, I'll just leave and go on. And, and it was during that year that I met uh, another mentor of mine. His name's Mark Guadagnoli. He's down at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and he's in the skill acquisition world. And I took a class from him. I'd never mm-hmm. taken a class in motor learning or skill acquisition up until that point. And I really got interested in it, and I really got interested in it. He was a really passionate educator, and he really inspired me in the classroom. And, and then I just, as I got further into it, I started looking at what his life was like. He was working with teams and skill acquisition and consulting with teams on performance, and, and I just thought, you know... And I was at the same time seeing my friends who had gone to medical school just absolutely miserable (laughs) and seeing, you know, what the life of, you know, you know, the medical school graduate was like. And I just I I was really honest with myself. Which of these lifestyles fits me better? Mm. It's my tendencies better and my inclinations better. And very quickly, I learned that it was going to be the academic route you know, be a prof and have time to work and sort of consult and do things. And that that's really where it took that sort of right-hand turn and never look back. Hmm. I know this is a bit of, we'll kind of circulate back and forth on this stuff, but I'm kind of curious of your viewpoint in now times when, in listening to you, you, you kind of hear this, 
Well, I, I, I kind of floated to here and then I kind of thought about this. And nowadays there's kind of like, you got to finish school. You got to get your master's. You got to get your PhD. You got to do all that. There's this almost like an arms race around education now. And yeah. in essence, you're, you're talking about sort of a, a less formal, more, you know, flow yeah, <laughs> flow right. process towards your education. Do you think, do you think in some ways that's a better way than what's happening to a lot of young people now where they're almost being forced to, to accept this, this is what they have to do in order to survive sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, let's, let's use the sport analogy of early specialization, right? Mm-hmm. You know, David Epstein wrote that great book on, called range and talked about the value of experience sampling and being a dabbler and things. And then when you find something that sort of resonates and feels authentic and you can, that's where you, you know, that's where you start to specialize. And that's not true across the board. There are exceptions to that, but I do believe that's generally the better way for athletes to develop. And I also think that for students, it's the same. I mean, the lessons I got out of university, you know, so much of that happens sort of between the classes, right? You meet people, you get a chance to interact with others, you get to hear different worldviews and expand your intellectual horizons. And and if you're open to that, you know, you can pay attention to the signals that are coming in. And, and, and I was always, I think, just lucky that I was mm-hmm. sort of wired that way. My mom laughs at the fact that I just kind of I float around with the breezes and things just sort of come my way. And uh, part of that's luck. And part of it, I think, is just, you know, the fact that that is sort of, like I said, the way that I'm wired. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't sort of, you know, say that's the direction I'm going to go at all costs. You know, I'll Mm -hmm. set a big goal, but then it's, you know, there's flexibility and adaptability built into that strategy. and, And if something comes up along the way, I'll pivot. And if I decide you know, if I'm honest with myself, I've taken some big pivots in my life and walked away from opportunities too that didn't feel authentic to me. And those were hard decisions. But, you know, I think being able to be flexible and adaptable and paying attention to, you know, what's working for you and what's not and what feels right and true to you, I think those are so valuable. And, you know, for students, I think, you know, to you know, I, I, you're right. There is that arms race. I'm still in the academic world. I still teach classes. I am right now. And I see that all the time. And I, I don't like the direction it's going. I think we're putting a, far too much pressure on outcomes and on grades and, you know, the way that we evaluate. I think education needs to, you know, take a good look in the mirror at some point. But the broad and it's a long answer, but I just think, you know, being open to sampling experiences can really lead you in a path that I think, you know, when you get there, you look back and you say, yeah, this is real to me. This feels right to me. This is authentic to the person that I am. And and then you just feel motivated to keep after it. Right. And you don't feel like you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You mentioned walking away from some big opportunities. I don't, you know, if you, it's not something you want to talk about, that fair enough. But if you have a, an example that maybe the listener can can learn from, what what was it? How did you how did you make the decision that even though it seemed like the golden egg, it, it wasn't for you? Yeah. Well, you know, it, the example that comes to mind first is from my academic world and, and specifically my research endeavors. There was a point. So maybe 10 years ago now where, you know, there was a 
there was an opportunity for a grant and it was, they were looking for intervention projects for kids that had developmental disabilities, specifically around fetal alcohol syndrome and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And I, I had some interest in this. It wasn't an area of specialty of mine, but at the time, you know, you're an academic, you got to get grants, you got to publish. And I wrote this grant and they funded this idea. It was a bit of an innovative project, bit of a long shot, but it got funded. Mm -hmm. And that started a, you know, probably a five or six year project where, you know, we were going through the granting cycles and trying to get papers published and speaking a lot and running an actual program for kids and families that had a real need. And it was, it was really incredible. I, you know, some of those things you mentioned in my bio about getting featured on the front page of the Globe and Mail, like that was something that happened to me as a result of that project. But it just, you know, it, the process of it just started to become overbearing on, you know, the, the whole world of you get your grant, you start writing grant reports, you try to get your papers published, then you have to write new grants. And it was just beating me down. Mm. And, and, you know, I just, I, at a, I reached a point where I was with my collaborators and finally just said, you know what, I have to walk away from this. I just, it's not, it's not healthy for me. I'm not, not sort of intrinsically driven by it. And it was very hard because again, there were all these sort of carrots being dangled. Plus these were real families and real kids that I felt mm. in a way that I was abandoning, but, you know, eventually reached a point where, you know, I had some great collaborators on that project that took it over and I just had to step away. And that was, that was a really important lesson for me because as soon as I made that decision and I did it, I had absolutely no regret. Mm. I knew it was the right thing. As soon as I had the courage to say, that's not who I am and that's not serving me. And that's mm. when all these other avenues started to open up in my life. And that, you know, I, I, I took a lot of lessons from that and, you know, very much thought, okay, well, what are these areas of my life and work and personal life that really are filling me with energy and passion? And I just started more and more whittling away the things that weren't in line with those passions and those values and started saying yes to more of the things that were. Nice. I like that. What did, so tell me what you over time fell in love with in terms of your work. What is it that you love to do or are really inspired by? Yeah. Well, I, I, I've always walked this strange line between the academic world and the applied world. Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of an outlier there. You know, so I'm one of the things, you know, I, I my all my graduate work and my Ph.D. were all in this area of human learning and human motor control. And, you know, I would say I like most people who come out of that. I got my doctor in 2002. You know, you get thrust into the classroom, you start teaching and you do your research. And, you know, I around that same time that I was taking a good long look in the mirror about, you know, and evaluating what was true and real to me and what was giving me passion. I realized that even the things I was teaching in my classes were stale dated. You know, I, I joke that my, my PhD from 2002 expired 10 years ago. And 
And, it, and I thought, well, what, what is it that's really interesting to me here? I'm trying to figure out ways to optimize learning and how the brain works. And there was this real explosion going on at the time in the neuroscience world and, and, and understanding how the brain works and how neuroplasticity really unfolds. And this word flow state was starting to be bounced around a lot more and not commonly, but it, it caught my attention because I had been reading some papers around how when you induce flow state and whatever that meant at that time, they were showing these really interesting spikes in the learning process. And I thought, well, that's strange. Like this isn't in any of the textbooks that I'm using. And yet the rate of improvement is off the charts here. What is this? I mean, I thought it was BS, frankly, the first few papers that I read. And and what that ended up doing was launching me into an entirely new area of sort of academic interest that was intersecting with my traditional work, which was in learning and movement control and high performance under pressure. But there was this world of flow state that was beginning to unfold. And, you know, as we are learning more and more now, that turns out to be, you know, a place where you do see supercharged learning. You do see, you know, every gold medal has got flow state under it somewhere, right? Every championship. <laughs> and it also just happens to be the place where we feel the best and we're the most happy in life. Flow state originated from, you know, the positive psychology world. And, you know, Csikszentmihalyi was the mm-hmm. the psychologist. He just passed away before Christmas, sadly. But Not really. I didn't know that. Yeah. He, uh, you know, his he wasn't interested in athletes or, you know, creatives per se. He was interested in happiness and he went around the world and sort of unlocked or tried to uncover what are the experiences people are having when they feel in flow. And he coined the term and wrote the book. And, and it was these nine or 10 characteristics where time passes strangely and we feel real connection with others or with our instrument. Right. And, uh, and that, and then of course the neuroscience started to catch up with that. And we started to say, well, what is it that's triggering these strange experiences we have when we get into that state? And that's really where it got interesting for me when you have this intersection of psychology and biology and, Mm. and then starting to understand that more. And of course, you know, the more you understand about what's happening in the brain now that the challenge really is how can we go in and reverse engineer some of that so we can have it more with intention Mm. as opposed to waiting for all the stars to align when we have you see those magical performances show up right Mm -hmm. who were some of your early influencers in that world that sort of kept your fire burning and you going oh this this really is something i gotta unpack yeah i would say unquestionably uh reading the book rise of superman by stephen kotler was mm. that was that was the one because i'd read some research papers but you know they were specifically about learning but kotler in that book you know his general his thesis of that book was that you know the reason he studied he was really into and still is really interested in action sport and extreme sport athletes and the progression that we've seen there in the past couple of decades is exponential right the learning in other words is exponential whereas in a lot of other more traditional sports you see very incremental progression over time and what he put forward in that book was that the reason you see you know what's going on in snowboard let's say the sport that i'm involved with these days the reason that you're we're going to see things happen in a month in beijing that 
we've never seen before is because there's a lot of flow inherent in that sport mm. and sports like that. And I just thought, my goodness. And then he also was in that same book, put that thesis forward, but drew in all the neuroscience and drew in all the psychology and sort of said, you know, there are pockets of research going on all over the world in labs and they're converging on this one idea. Nobody's necessarily calling it that, but he pulled a lot of ideas together in that book. And that was really an eye opener for me. And that that's where, you know, I started digging through the references in the back of that book and reading the original research papers that were behind it and ended up connecting with Stephen Kotler and doing some work, still do work with him to this day. But those were, that was really the, the watershed moment where, like I said, my first PhD expired 10 years ago, but I feel like I've done another one off to the side in my own time since then. Mm. So as you're going through this, you know, process of these different elements of whether it's motor learning or flow, or obviously you start to bias towards an interest around flow. Um, and, and at the same time, as you just mentioned, I think the last 20 years, the neuroscience world has exploded with research and there was a lot of sort of supposition or beliefs, but nobody really knew it. And I myself am getting more into the neuroscience side of things, understanding human movement and the, because I'm in more of the physical domain, but I talk about putting the head back on the body, so to speak, and recognizing, you know, what the neurological system really does. But um, we haven't, you know, a lot of us have, have sort of been educated to train the human body as though it doesn't have a brain in some sense. And now we're putting that brain back in. Um, what have been, if you if you sort of put that point of recognition on what's happened in the industry in the last 25, 30 years, what do you see as the holes that still exist that people need to recognize that maybe you see now because of your educational portfolio, in essence, that we need to broaden our perspective on? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that work, a lot of those ideas are really uh, close to my heart these days. You know, I work with outside of my academic world, I work at a company called Exos, which I know you know very well. And, you know, their their legacy and their history is really around, you know, the, the more physical side of things, right? You know, Mark Stegen was a real leader in the early days of innovative strength and conditioning techniques and tools and practices. And, you know, the you know, as that company has continued to evolve, a lot of the things we're talking about now are things like, yes, we need to have strong and agile parts, and those parts need to be well-fueled and hydrated. But on top of it all, there's an operating system, and we need to be thinking about how to optimize that operating system so that all those well-fueled, strong, agile parts can do what they're being trained to do and to do it more on demand and under pressure and all the other real world scenarios that show up. And so, you know, how can we do that? How can we think about these connections between mind and body? And there, because there is no separation in reality. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk about how we can leverage the brain and its multitude of connections with the body to you know, get more out of the physical self, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, part of that is psychology, part of that is, you know, applied neuroscience. And, but, you know, it, it's just, it's incredible to me now what's happening in 
you know, our worlds that have really collided here in, in a really synergistic way. And I think that is the future, right? How can you use this thing above the neck to get the most out of what's happening below the neck? That's the future to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Describe for the listener, maybe somebody who's maybe, you know, you are obviously at the pinnacle of understanding of things like flow. And so what, what is it in your, so how do you describe it to the listener now, after all these years of research and perspective, et cetera, what is flow and how sure. does one get into it? Well, I think when I, I would answer there, I can answer that about four different ways, but the first mm-hmm. one we touched on a little bit, it's a psychological experience. It's a phenomenological experience that we have when we feel our best. So this is the, you know, the chick sent me high contribution here. So this is where we feel time passing very strangely, right? Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, five minutes feels like an hour and sometimes the opposite is true. Mm-hmm. So time passing strangely, this feeling of connection, this feeling of effortlessness like things just seem easy but yet there's a high degree of focus right but there's calmness kind of pervading the whole experience so anytime you felt whether that's in a movement context if you're an athlete where it's just everything just feels easy and everything just is going your way one movement is seamlessly flowing into the next right or one idea is seamlessly flowing into the next. That's where the term came from, right? So that's one way. When you think about the the lived experience of being in it, that's flow. But inside the skull, what's going on, there's really now, there's three things that are going on that are probably all interrelated. One is that you see a real deactivation in the frontal lobe. So your frontal lobe, that front part, that real human part of your brain that allows us to do things like, you know, complex problem solving and conscious problem solving and willpower. And all these things come from our highly evolved frontal lobes. Interestingly enough, when we get into flow, that part starts to go very quiet. Mm. Really, really interesting, right? That thinking brain starts to deactivate and all these other interesting you know experiences start to show up that's why time seems altered and that's why your sense of self feels altered those are the frontal involved in networks that you know give us that sense of time and self and all the rest of it so that's part of it you see deactivation in parts of the brain the other thing that happens or a couple of other things that happen is that there's this shift in the electrical signature of the brain. So your brain is an electrical organ. If we put electrodes on your head right now, we would see pulses and waves coming out, right? Depending on what you're doing. So if you're really focused on what you're doing, you see these things called beta waves, which are about you know 20 of these pulses per second just emanating from the brain. Versus say when you wake up in the morning and it's sort of slow and lazy waves. Well, we know now with the pretty nice degree of certainty that there is an electrophysiological signature that's right around the 10 pulses per second mark when people drop into a state of high performance. Mm. The, the electrical pulses coming off the brain find a sweet spot. So that's another thing that happens in flow. And then, of course, there's this you know chemical cocktail that shows up that's built around adrenaline and dopamine and serotonin and, you know, the endocannabinoids that show up. There is a chemical cocktail that is deployed across your brain that changes how capable we are of bringing focus to bear, 
how we can still feel motivated and yet really calm and focused. A lot of that is chemically mediated. So all of those things together. So you've got the chemistry of it, you've got the electricity of it, and then you've got the anatomical activations and deactivations going on, which all change your lived experience of how it feels to be in that moment. Mm. That's flow, you know, sort of in a nutshell. That's really cool. Um, having done some reading myself, but not obviously not being anywhere as knowledgeable as you, but it seems to me in the reading that I've done is there are certain sports or activities that lend themselves more to a sense of flow than others. And the animal or the elephant in the room always seems to be this idea of effort. Like you have to put some kind of effort into something all of a sudden and or the tactical technical side of things where you have to think about what you're going to do next. Those are the sort of the, the asterisks in the, in the thing. So you mentioned, you know, snowboarding before and getting into flow. So what have you seen in terms of those differentiators where, you know, and how those things get in the way, like effort, like sometimes people think, well, I have to put more effort into, as an example, a golf swing, you know, sure, yeah. you, you put more effort and the ball goes a, a shorter distance, you know, so it's kind of counterintuitive in some sense. But. Yeah. It goes crooked when you do that too. <laughs> but yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I think the, the two groups that I spend the most time with and have spent the most time with in the past five years, let's say have been snowboarders and golfers, mm -hmm. which are probably at opposite ends of sort of the spectrum of, you know, what, what you would consider to be flowy type sports, right? Mm -hmm. So you're right, you know, sports like snowboard, especially the disciplines that I get to hang around with the slope style and the big air folks, they're doing really dangerous things. Risk is a huge flow trigger, right? There's a list of, you know, anywhere between 17 and 24 of these flow triggers that can help push you towards flow and risk and danger and consequence is a very powerful one, right? Mm. Being pushed along by gravity is another one. And of course, that's what's happening when you're moving downhill at rapid rates of speed. And so, you know, a collection of flow triggers that you see in snowboard really lend themselves to that sport as more of a flowy sport, as opposed to something like golf, which is very analytical. I mean, people mm -hmm. who tend to go into golf tend to be more analytical, not as not across the board, but it tends to be the way it is. And of course, you know, if you play golf, you know that you have to choose a different club every time and you have to check the wind and choose targets. And, you know, you're using that frontal lobe a lot by necessity, but we mm -hmm. also know but that's the part that you have to put to the side when it comes to actually executing the golf swing. That's easier said than done. And that's true of anything in life, by the way. So what I try to do with people, depending, so if you're a snowboarder, it's like, okay, let's try to prime the pump before you start so that we can drop into flow more quickly. And you're going to get all those natural triggers along the way, but we try to prime it a little bit in advance with golfers it's more okay let's talk about what flow is let's talk about what flow is not and then let's talk about the fact that you don't have to be in flow the entire time we can teach people how to toggle in and out so that when you need to make decisions which you need to do 72 times or less hopefully if you're a professional golfer per round right use the front to lobes when you need them but then when you've made all of your decisions and you've committed to what it is you're about to go and do, 
it's time to park that and it's time to get the brain into that state where the electrical output starts to shift and we can do things with breath and with vision and other things that can help expedite that process. And then I have some other technologies. I know that you've seen, you know, flying drones and that sort of thing where we teach people how to shift, right? How to self-regulate into these states of mind more Mm -hmm. intentionally so that they feel empowered. So that when you're in those moments, right, you go, okay, I've made my choice. Now I'm committed. Now let's park it and let's let the body do what it's trained to do without the interference of your frontal lobes. That's the secret, right? Everybody talk, you know, you hear these expressions everywhere. Get out of your own way. Don't overthink it. What does that mean? Mm. Well, to me, that means something very specific. It means frontal lobe deactivation or something that we call transient hypofrontality. Mm, Very cool. Well, when I first meet you, you're, uh, other than the presentation you do, you're in this cafeteria where we're all eating and you've got this drone and guys are, have headsets on and they're thinking about like they're they're flying the drone with their brain which yeah. i think for anybody listening there who hasn't experienced it are going to go what the f but yeah. sort of ex- ex- and i went what the f when i saw it so how wh- explain that what is going on and what what is that technology yeah it's built upon an existing technology which is neurofeedback which is essentially mm-hmm. getting feet you, you get to see in real time what what's going on in your brain in terms of the electrical output And when you see it in real time, you try to do things to change it, right? Mm -hmm. And you see that if you breathe a certain way, maybe your brain patterns start to shift. And then you can do more of that and you can learn to control your brain a little bit. The fun thing about the drone, because typical neurofeedback is in a psychologist's office and you see a little like really low graphic resolution avatar running faster or slower, that's a reflection of your brain activity. It's not very compelling. It's certainly not compelling for a snowboarder. So so what I stumbled upon was this technology that uses neurofeedback, but the representation of your brain activity is in a drone. So you wear a headset, it's listening in, and I get to watch what's happening in the real-time output of the brain. And when I can coax people into this place that we know is correlated with flow, and we do that using visualization, like imagine what you, how you feel on your best day. Like what is it? Close your eyes and really embody that memory and get deep into the experience. And what happens is, is your brain starts to shift. And when you get it to where we're trying to get it to, the drone starts to fly magically around the room and you feel like a Jedi and it's cool, right? And it's like, wow, tell me how to do that. I originally... <laughs> I I used it because I wanted to capture the attention of some professional snowboarders, right? Like, how are you going to get them to, you know, take an interest in how to optimize their brain state? Mm -hmm. I wasn't certainly going to lecture them on transient hypofrontality, Scott, I can tell you. (laughs) So... One of the things that I thought... That's like telling them that a carrot's good for them as well. Right? Yeah. (laughs) But you put them in a room full of their friends and they start, you know, magically making a a helicopter fly around the room that's completely being flown only by their own brain. No magic, no wires. 
then it's compelling. And then you've got an in, right? Then I have, that starts a conversation. Hmm. I, I, I've since those days found that there's a lot more utility to that particular piece of technology than just, you know, a, an interesting conversation starter. But right. that was the genesis of it. Yeah. Beautiful. So I'm going to segue a little bit in the, in this process of learning about what you do. Obviously, as you're going along and through this growth and development, you run into this woman uh, named Kara, and she becomes your your wife. And so, one, what does she represent to you? Why do you fall in love with this woman? And and how does she balance you or help you stay the course, or in some cases, maybe pull your shirt down a little bit to keep you in the right place. <laughs> Quick break here, and we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest. Are you still uncertain what reconditioning is all about? Well, first of all, if you are a therapist or a conditioning or performance coach, you'll understand that these two worlds don't always see eye to eye. Jamie and I have lived in both of these worlds for 50 plus years of combined practice, and we know how to bring these worlds together because that's what we've done throughout our careers. We've used this powerful operating system to integrate the strengths of these unique worlds, as well as recognizing the contributions of so many other aspects of human performance. That's why we've teamed up with Matt Bush from Next Level Neuro to integrate the overreaching capacity of applied neurology. This new neural reconditioning approach is hands down the best system for bringing the world of therapy and performance together and creating more robust human beings. Join the reconditioning revolution today. Visit us at reconditioninghq.com. Are you in the world of human performance or do you seek to perform at your best each day physically and mentally? Matrix Fitness is a company dedicated to helping you succeed. Whether you train people for a living or you live to train, Matrix has the equipment to help you make it happen, and they have the guidance and support you need to make your best decisions. Matrix recently engaged performance coach Mark Fitzgerald as their head of performance, and his wealth of knowledge and experience in training people and building leading-edge performance spaces is unparalleled. Mark and the rest of the team at Matrix will stop at nothing to ensure you reach your objectives in human performance. For more information and a free consultation, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA and explore the possibilities today. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. I'd love that pivot, Scotty. I did not see that coming at this point in the conversation. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my wife, Kara. Yeah, she's an incredible human being. And, you know, I think like any, well, at least a lot of the good relationships I know, they're based on the sort of opposites attract sort of idea. We're quite different people. You know, she is by nature very optimistic and really positive about everything. And I'm not the opposite of that per se, but I'm skeptical. I'm argumentative. That's my job as an academic, at least part of my job, right? Mm -hmm. I'm always questioning. I'm, you know, I'm pessimistic about ideas until somebody can. And she's, you know, just this very open soul and she's you know she's her default setting is just to be happy with a smile on her face and positive and she has this great ability to you know inspire others and Mm. that that's the first people that she does that with obviously myself our two young girls she's just an incredible role model for them you know she you know, a little bit of a story about her just during the the pandemic she she walked away from 
a career that she had put 15 years into. She was, you know, a director at the university in our international office and, you know, took a long look as a lot of people have done during this time of the great resignation and, and realized that what she was doing wasn't fulfilling her. And Mm. she walked away from what at the time was actually a very nice promotion Mm. Uh, and started a business and she's now mm. running a business here in our hometown and you know just loves that you know has a team of people that she employs and leads and she's just found an endless amount of energy there so that courage is also very inspiring right just to be able to do that i think because i'm you know the academic is the world is very secure i'm tenured you know i like mm. low risk and she's more of a risk taker in that regard uh, than I am. And I've always found that to be inspiring. And yeah, she's just a a really, um, you know, positive life force and she just brings joy and happiness to our household. Very cool. How did you guys meet? Uh, Well, originally we met, uh, she was at the university. She was Mm. in, she was a student at the university, Scott. This is one of those uh, stories that sounds a bit, you know, like the classic academic story, but she was a student when I was in, I was a teacher at the university at the time and I bumped into her there. You know, she was a leader at the university at the time. It's not nearly as uh, sorted of a story as I'm making it out to be here, but she ended up, she left the university and, and, you know, she went off to grad school and a few years later we bumped into each other and, and reconnected there. And um, yeah, that was kind of the start of it, but yes, we met, she was a student and I was a professor. Hmm. Yeah. It's pretty much the same story I have. I I was the strength coach at a university and my wife was an athlete there. I I was already with somebody else and going on to get married, went to the NHL, came back, and then we rebumped into each other after divorce and the rest is history. But so yeah. you gotta meet people somewhere, so to speak. Exactly. And you know, <laughs> I think that uh, you know, I think we were both at a point where, you know, we were in a similar situation, actually, at the time, both of us were in relationships and, but uh, just kind of found each other at the right time. And, and uh, certainly looking back now, you know, 15 years or whatever it's been, it was the best decision certainly I ever made. That's awesome. Well, uh, this is the part where I, I read your purpose to you. So you are an Aries three or Pisces three, excuse me. My I was going to say, yeah, my mom's Aries. Yeah. I'm the Pisces. March. Yeah, March thir- March 12th, you said. So you're Pisces 3. So your purpose is to use your generosity and strength to live by your own rules, acquiring confidence and a belief in yourself. No statement should be believed because it is made by an authority. Hans Reichenbach. Authority is the enemy of the new ideas and creativity, of new ideas and creativity. But Pisces 3s never listen to anyone but themselves. They are attracted to the imp- impossible odds. They have a great need to be the best and are capable of achieving their goals. Their ideals are high. They dream of the perfect relationship. However, intimacy is not easy for Pisces 3s. They love their freedom and they hate restrictions of any kind. If they are rigid, they are also critical and judgmental. Pisces 3s are gifted in, with great minds. They are inventive intuitive and courageous good with words they can be attracted to the profession of writing and may find travel in foreign places intriguing in fact anything different and out of the ordinary ordinary attracts them when they discover their purpose they can transform themselves into more than just powerful intellectuals well holy smokes i feel (laughs) clean 
Um, I, I have to say, I, I've never been a huge uh, believer in astrology, but that nailed me. And I, I, the part that really resonated was the part about uh, sort of the uh, well, only listening to yourself piece and the uh, general pushback on authority. That's that's that certainly has been my mo in life. I've always been attracted to sort of countercultures and and uh, you know not sort of taking everything that's told to me as mm. gospel. And, you know, I've always been a rule bender by, you know, whatever design or lessons learned along the way. But, um, yeah, I would say that nailed me. Very cool. Yeah. It's funny. I read it because I would say eight out of 10 times people go, wow. And the reason I bought the book, I tell the story quite frequently so people understand it, but I, I discovered this book and I had always had this saying taped to the top of my desktop. Some men see things as they are and say, why I dream things that never were and say, why not? So I opened this book up and every thing it tells you what your purpose is and then it has a quote and so it tells me my purpose i'm like whoa that's pretty and then the quote is that's the quote and i'm like you gotta be shitting me so i that's bought the book yeah, yeah, it was wild. Too, too wild yeah um on that note like on on sort of your who you are in essence you become a dad so how does becoming a dad change you or challenge you in essence because when you're kind of a maverick or you like doing your thing or being you know all of a sudden these these little people there they can they they can pull your strings a little bit so how does that affect you <laughs> yeah well uh, first of all i got enormously lucky that i didn't have kids until a bit later in life so i was I was pushing 40 when my wife and I had our first child. So I think luckily I had had enough time to get a lot of that kind of, you know, frontier spirit. I traveled a ton. I was, you know, I moved every year of my life. It seemed like at least once or twice. And, you know, I was putting down some roots when, when kids came along and that was fortunate. Mm. I don't think I would have been the parent that I am today had I had kids in my 20s, let's say. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but it's just, you know, it's just as any parent knows, it's just an amazing thing that happens. And there's this immediate shift in your perspective when your kids are born and, you know, nothing is ever the same. And, you know, I just I feel very much you know, especially as the father of two girls, Hmm. I feel this, you know, I know that, you know, I came from a split family. And so I really valued the role that, you know, having a stable, I really wanted a stable upbringing for my kids. Hmm. And, and I know the role that, you know, a father plays uniquely in the lives of daughters. And, you know, so I take great responsibility every day and and how I carry myself, the way I react to things, you know, very much against my tendencies. My father was very reactive. You know, he was, a, as I mentioned earlier, he was a very firm disciplinarian and short-tempered. And, and I certainly have all of that in me. But um, it's taught me, being a parent has taught me because of that you know, responsibility I feel with them. It's taught me a tremendous amount of patience. And, Mm. and I just want to be, you know, the kind of person that hopefully they might run into down the road in their lives. Because look, Scott, I, someday they're going to bring somebody home. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm walking around here acting like a jerk all day, I'd say there's a pretty good chance they're going to bring a jerk home. And I don't mm-hmm. really want that for them. I don't want that for me either. So right. I try to model the kind of behavior that hopefully they might be drawn to later in life. <laughs> 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 you know, that's a big part of it for me. But yeah, just their I and like just that. their absolute joy and happiness, and you watch them develop. I, you know, I'm a student of the brain, and to watch the speed with which they pick up playing musical instruments, for example, it's just astounding to me. So I, you know, as a living laboratory and as a curious human being, and someone who's interested in the brain, I just find that endlessly fascinating. So mm. for all of those reasons, yeah. Interesting. I'd love to get your viewpoint for the listener and for all of us in some sense around, you know, this this pandemic has kind of stagnated society to a degree. And you know as well as I do that movement is movement and the brain and flow are kind of intimately co-weaving. So how do we how do we uh instigate in our population to recognize that if they don't move they're not going to be healthy you know in, in some sense and and i think most people equate that to exercise but but it's not just exercise it's it's moving and flowing and being right. and doing right yeah uh, it's a, it, it's it's an it's great to me that I'm seeing. So, you know, Adam Grant is organizational Mm -hmm. psychologist, wrote a great article in the New York times a few months back about, you know, the, the word languishing has come up so often and he has popularized that word again. And, you know, that feeling that we have, we're not like, you know, we're not hitting rock bottom, but we're not thriving. And we're just kind of in this state. And a lot of people are in this state of languishing. And he wrote this beautiful article where he, basically said that the antidote for languishing is flow. Mm. Oh, wow, it's so great to see that word becoming more popularized. And, 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 and what that means to everybody is different. Like flow is a very individual thing. And for some people, it's very heavily movement-based. Um, for other people, it's more just creative and, you know, being connected to hu- other human beings are big sources of flow for a lot of people. But you know, as a rule, let's be honest, like movement is life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't move, you die. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. a truism, right? And so, you know, the idea that through movement, we can, in a bottom-up way, change the state of the brain is a very powerful thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mentioned that thing about getting your frontal lobes quiet. Well, that's nice because what happens in your frontal lobes a lot of the time is, you know, your inner critic lives up there, right? Mm-hmm. Those nagging voices saying, well, I don't know if you can do that or should do that. Like your frontal lobes are there to protect you. And like that gets into the realm of rumination a lot of times. And, mm-hmm. and when we get out and we move, you know, there is a there is a phenomenon called exercise-induced transient hypofrontality. When we move our bodies, even for about 20 minutes at mild to moderate pace, going for a walk, your frontal lobes start to go quiet. And we feel this immense freedom from ourselves mm-hmm. in those moments, right? That can provide insight and windows into another way of thinking and being. And the more often you do that, the more profound that experience can be and and you know all not to mention what happens when we start to move our body and you get these all those chemicals of flow we talked about like dopamine 
which is like a reward chemical, and it's the, re- it's the molecule of motivation and pursuit, and endorphins, which allow us to kind of push through our limits, and these endocannabinoids, which make us feel happy and blissful. All of those things show up when we move our bodies, mm. vigorously, even gently. And so movement, quite literally, again, from a bottom-up way, can bring about a more pleasant state of mind. And that's a really powerful thing, Scott, because, you know, when we think about how to be happier, you know, a lot of times you read self-help books and it's a lot of it's about, you know, changing your mental frame or talking to yourself differently and using positive self-talk. All of those things are great. But what you're doing there or attempting to do is wrestle your own mind with your own mind. That's a tricky mm-hmm. game to play, right? And some people aren't very good at that game. So what I think is a nice supplement to that is trying to use your body and movement and breath and other things to shift in a bottom-up way what's happening in your brain. So you don't have to you know, have this inner duel with yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Let the body do the work for you and the change emerges And then you're just plunged into a better place, better headspace, right? So, you know, that, I guess, is a long-winded way of saying, yeah, absolutely. Movement can be profound in so many different ways. Not to mention, we haven't even talked about the basic physical health benefits that come from it, obviously, right? But, so, yeah. No, I I love that response. And... Off the back of that, I'm kind of curious because a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are in the human performance world. What's what's what do you feel is the next or the newest sort of horizon of human performance that people, if they're not reading about it or investigating it right now, should be in your viewpoint? Yeah, I think you know there's there's two. Well, there's a, there's a list, but I think the probably the most powerful for people these days is learning better inner awareness as a starting point. I use that word carefully because I could have said meditation. I could have said mindfulness, but a lot of those words have a lot of baggage and, Mm. you know, a lot of people sort of, you know, brush those words off as if they're new agey concepts. But I can tell you, you know, I I didn't know 10 years ago, really any high level athletes that had any sort of uh, mindfulness meditation practice I don't know too many of people these days who are at the top in the elite who don't. Hmm. And, and again, you know, the way to think about that, you know, sure, there are positive benefits of, you know, meditating. It can be relaxing and it can downregulate you. But the real value is that it can build up a sense of inner awareness where you can pay attention to those voices in your head. You can pay attention to your energy levels. You can pay attention to the signals in your body, right? Noticing all of the internal signals and sharpening that tool is a superpower because it's very hard to change the direction you're going in until you know where it is you're starting from, right? Mm -hmm. GPS is no good unless you know what the starting coordinates are, right? So starting with that, sharpening the tools of inner awareness first and then learning how to make changes 
how to pivot and go in a direction that you want to go in. So if you are, you know, it's a random Tuesday and you're showing up to Scotty's gym, you don't really feel like being there. How can you crank the dial up, right? What can you do outside of like, you know, traditional warm-up paradox? How do we warm up the brain? What can you do there, right? Or let's say that the day is over and we're trying to get towards sleep. How can you turn the dial down, down-regulate the nervous system so that we can have better sleep, right? Which is all important for learning and recovery and so many things. I spend most of my days talking about sleep these days. But again, Mm -hmm. you can notice where you are, know that you have the power to shift and self-regulate, learn how to control that dial of your autonomic nervous system, crank it up when the moment calls for it, but learn how to turn it down when the moment calls for rest and recovery. Those, to me, are the keys. And, you know, if you're lucky, when you turn that dial up high enough, maybe you start tipping into that flow world a little bit too. Awesome. Well, we could probably wax philosophic for hours, but uh, I asked you for an hour, so I'm going to sort of bring this puppy to a close with one question. Um, you will pass from this world at some point, uh, hopefully not for a long time. What What would you like people to um, sort of not say about you, but think how would you like to pe- people that you've encountered to have to think about you as when you're gone. Hmm. Well, I think what has become true or to me and every day becomes a little bit more true is that, you know, underneath all of these things that we've talked about today, whether you're working with athletes or whether you're just working with your, <laughs> you're dealing with your family or friends or in your relationships, Starting from a place of curiosity is really the first domino that has to fall. And I think that I'm sort of inherently a curious person. Mm. It's why I think I was drawn to university. It's why I've been drawn to, you know, high performance and trying to master my own crafts along the way. I'm just curious about, endlessly curious about how to do things better, how I can improve myself and I think that, you know, if, if everybody could take that to heart and just try more in their life to be genuinely curious. Again, we talked about kids. Kids are so wired for this, right? All you get is why, 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 why? They're, they're wired for curiosity, right? But as we get older, we stop asking that question a lot. We just think we've got the tools that we got. We, whatever we brought to the dance, we're here now. We stop being curious. And the, the most powerful lessons I've learned in my life is when I've remembered to start asking why again. And that's led me into all of these amazing opportunities in my life and led me to a better you know, place of, I feel like, just generally more happy in my own life because I ask myself that question more often. So you know, maybe just as a person who was endlessly and genuinely curious about the world and the people around him, that would be nice. That's awesome. That's a great way to finish. Well, sir, thank you for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure and it's great to get to know you a little bit better. And uh, I know that our paths probably should cross more often because we have lots of uh, synergy. So hopefully they will more physically at some future point. So 
I, I, nothing would make me happier, Scotty. And, you know, congrats to you on all the great work you're doing both in, you know, your, your, your profession. And also, you know, I know the, the great work you're doing with a lot of, you know, our Canadian athletes and others, but, you know, thanks for that as the Olympics are getting closer here, but also, you know, just on this commitment to this podcast, it's, it's a great resource. And I know the work that you put into it and, and thank you for doing that too. And it's, it's, I'm proud to be uh, adding my name to the, the list of great guests you've had on here. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for coming on. It's nice to, I appreciate you taking the time. All right, Scotty. Have a great day. You too, my friend. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.